0: Hello, Hills family. Can we celebrate what we just witnessed? Last Sunday at all three of our campuses, Keller, West Fort Worth, and North Richland Hill, 67 people made the decision to put on Christ in baptism. I'm rejoicing over that, and I'm also celebrating that I believe some are going to make that same decision today. So, If you're watching online, thank you for joining us. Today, it's my privilege to speak at our Keller campus. We're in a study this spring of the book of 1 Peter. We'll actually wrap it up next Sunday. We'll be in chapter four today. You can be finding that. And while you do, I'm just gonna be vulnerable and share with you one of the most painful memories of my life. I still bear the scars of this experience. I flew to Memphis, Tennessee to speak. I was picked up by my host. I was asked what I would like for supper. Now, when I travel, I like to taste the foods that are popular in certain parts of the world. So I said, what is Memphis famous for? They said barbecue. I said, great. I'm from Texas. I love barbecue. So we went to one of their most famous barbecue restaurants. I said, give me a barbecue sandwich. And they put this on my plate. Pulled pork with coleslaw on it. Can I just be honest? This is blasphemous to call that barbecue And because I'm a man of God, I spoke the word of the Lord to them and let them know what the truth of the matter really was. You see, something isn't right just because a majority calls it normal. And this is the tension that exiles and foreigners must constantly navigate. Peter is writing to people, calling them exiles and aliens throughout his letter. Because they are living out of place in the place they have lived all their lives. Their new faith in Jesus has caused their understanding of what is right and wrong to be out of alignment with the majority. And their strange ethic is getting some strong pushback. And so Peter is writing telling them expect opposition. In fact, Jesus said the world is going to treat you like it treated me. He's equipping them to deal with the hostility around them by reminding them of their living hope grounded in the resurrection of Christ. And so as we work through chapter 4 in a moment, seven times we are going to see Peter mention suffering. Christians do not get an exemption from suffering. In fact, as Christians, we get an expectation of suffering. Some are going to suffer externally through hatred and abuse and even persecution. It was true in the first century. It's true in our time. All of us are going to suffer internally because if we take up our cross, we're going to make decisions and sacrifices that are going to cost us. We're going to make sacrifices we wouldn't make if we weren't followers of Jesus. And so the promise of suffering is for every believer. But with this promise comes another promise that Peter is going to bring up in this chapter. The coming of judgment. And Peter thinks this truth should fortify our hope. So today we're going to talk about our living hope in the judgment of God. And I recognize the topic of judgment isn't very popular among some. And so before we get into the chapter, I want to lay a foundation for why judgment is good news. Let's begin in Hebrews 9, verse 27. A simple statement. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Simple But controversial. not the first part. People are destined to die once. I don't know anybody who disagrees with that. Unless you're Elvis, you are going to die, okay? We all have an expiration date. It's like the story of the doctor that called a man who would come in earlier for a physical. He said, I've got bad news and worse news. What's the bad news? The bad news is I expect you to die in 48 hours. That's Bad? What could be worse? The doctor said, well, i was been trying to call you since yesterday. Okay, a silly story, but it makes the point. Nobody argues with the idea that everyone's going to die. It's the second half that after that, all of us who die face judgment that creates a problem. So, what happens when we die? You see, this basically is a worldview issue. So, if you're worldview is secularist or materialist, then you believe that people are cosmic accidents, that our existence has no real purpose or meaning, and that life is going nowhere. You're going to die, and you're going to go back to nothingness, and the universe doesn't care because you weren't supposed to be here in the first place. That's a materialist worldview. But if you're a theist, then your worldview says your life was created by God. That your life has meaning and purpose because you were created by God. That this God wants to spend eternity with you and that you are responsible to God for how you live this life he gave you. So two completely contrasting worldviews. One says life is going nowhere. And if life is going nowhere, you know what? Then you might as well drift from one form of medication to another to numb the despair. Peter's going to mention some of these forms of medication in a moment. It could be chasing after money or alcohol or sex or drugs or celebrity. But you're simply trying to dull the awareness of your meaninglessness because life is going nowhere. But if life is going somewhere, then every person should live in alignment with this reality. This was the word of Paul when he's preaching to a bunch of philosophers in a town called Athens in Acts 17. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Remember, our living hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And if the resurrection of Jesus has happened, then coming judgment will happen. And if judgment is in everyone's future, then it's not loving to neglect talking about it. Again, I know the topic of judgment isn't popular, especially among some Christians. But I'll say again, if judgment is in everyone's future, it's not loving not to talk about it. Jesus did all the time. Jesus was always calling people to live in the future tense. He did it sometimes with words of encouragement. Put your treasure in heaven where it can't be lost or destroyed. Don't rejoice that demons obey you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But sometimes Jesus talked about the future in warnings. If you won't confess me when you stand before men, I won't confess you when you stand before God. Don't fear those that can harm the body. Fear the one that can put the whole body and soul into hell. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, we have 148 stories or teaching sections of Jesus. In 60 of them, over 40%, there's direct or indirect reference to coming judgment. And remember, Jesus went around proclaiming good news. So here's the big idea, that living with hope means hoping for judgment. Please understand, the early Christians did not find the doctrine of judgment to be offensive. For that matter, most Christians in the world today don't either. If you find the topic of judgment offensive, perhaps you live a very sheltered or pampered life and you don't know anything about oppression and you either don't see or you don't care to be bothered by the presence of evil and evildoers in the world. University of Yale theologian Miroslavov has helped me on this subject. He grew up in Yugoslavia. His father was a Pentecostal pastor, imprisoned by the communist regime, and tortured in a concentration camp. Then the communist regime fell, and the former Yugoslavia split into several nations, and a bitter civil war broke out. He lived through that experience, and he writes... I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. It isn't God love. Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, and some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I promise you that the young girl being sex trafficked right now believes in a God of judgment, that the Christian right now in prison getting tortured for their faith is hoping for a God of judgment. That the mother who is afraid to let her children on the street because they're patrolled by warlords and drug cartels is wanting God to judge. Judgment is good news to the oppressed, to those who are powerless against evildoers, for all those who are longing for things to be made right. Remember in Revelation, those who were martyred for their faith in Jesus are under an altar and they cry out how long God how long till our blood is avenged right now in heaven martyred saints are hoping for the judgment of God and so were many of Peter's readers and so Peter is writing to put their hope in the promise that God is judge and he's going to set things right we should to, we should live this day in light of that day. So with all that as a foundation now, we are ready to hear what Peter says about the judgment of God and why we should hope in it. Start in verse 1. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own evil desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. But remember, that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. And that is why the good news was preached to those who were now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. And so what does judgment motivate us to do? It says first, to sin less. Peter says those who have suffered for Christ, they're done with, they're finished with sin. What does he mean? He's simply saying that when you have taken hold of Christ, then temptation loses its grip on you. You become aware of the power of Christ in you that is stronger than the power of sin around you. You understand the New Testament never says that we can be sinless, but the New Testament does expect us to sin less. Because of Christ's power that is in us and because we have the increased capacity to see the emptiness of the lives of people around us who don't know God. Peter says we have been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from our forefathers. We can see the vacuousness of the way that we used to live. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You can look back on your life before Jesus and you say, I wasted so much of it on wild and foolish and godless living, but no more. And maybe most of all, Our awareness of the future that's ahead motivates us to avoid the filth that's around. Let me illustrate this way. In college, I lived in a house with five other guys. We had a house, and our bar for clean was pretty low. In fact, we only really cleaned our house twice a year. In the fall and the spring, there was an event where parents would come to campus. Now, we had a lot of cockroaches in our house, and we had an understanding with the cockroaches. You don't bother us, we won't bother you. The cockroaches would die and so moms and dads are coming. We swept the carcasses of all the cockroaches into a closet and closed the door. The parents are in the house that weekend. There is a blood-curdling scream. A mother had opened that door. She saw those cockroaches. We were chastised. We made it a point. Next time they came, we didn't just give the house the look of clean on the outside. We cleaned every part of that house. Listen, when you know the king is coming, you want every part of your life to be clean. You want to be pure because the king is coming. Paul talks about this in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope in who is coming impacts how we're living right now. We sin less. Peter talks a lot about judgment and the coming of Jesus in his second letter. And look how he says in verse 11 of chapter 3. So what kind of people should you be? You should live holy lives and serve God as you wait for and look forward to the coming of the day Of God, do your best to be without sin and without fault. We're hoping for the coming of Jesus and the judgment of God. The day when God comes to destroy all sin, and he's giving evidence of that day because he's destroying sin in us right now. But let's keep reading. Peter says, The end of the world is coming soon. What does that mean for us? How do we live? He says, therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. See, when you know the end is near, your priorities get more clear. And so not only do you sin less, but judgment motivates us to serve more. After all, what does the master want to find his servants doing When he returns, it's not a trick question. When the master returns, he wants to find his servants serving. We can't make more time. We can only make the most of the time that we have. How do we do this? Peter says, well, one thing, be sober-minded and pray. Take prayer more seriously. Prayer calms your soul. Prayer reminds you, no matter how much evil is around you, God is above you and God is in charge. Another thing... Peter says we can do to make the most of our time, is love one another deeply. In other words, stretch your love muscles. That word deeply literally referred to racing when people or horses would stretch for the finish line. Peter says love people like that. He knows it's hard. When he says do it cheerfully or without grumbling, he knows people are difficult. But your love will cover a multitude of their sins. And so forgive a lot. Share and invite people into your home. Remember, God doesn't just give us grace to save us. God gives us grace to flow through us. And this is why God has given each of us a gift. In fact, the word gift is a form of the word grace. And and Peter kind of lumps all these gifts into two big categories. God has given some of us a speaking gift. I think he's given me that gift. And I must steward that gift in light of the judgment of God. I'm always sobered by Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. God has given me a speaking gift. I cannot sell out to the cultural narratives that would make me more popular with the majority. He's coming to judge the living and the dead and to set up his kingdom. I must preach and teach the full counsel, I must tell people the Word of God. But I don't think God gives most in the body speaking gifts. I think He gives most in the body serving gifts. And Jesus wants to find His servants serving. In, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives three parables about coming judgment. The most known is the last one about sheep and goats separating some to the right, some to the left. There is no middle ground. And how does the king recognize his people when he returns? The king recognizes his people because they're busy serving people. They feed the hungry. They clothe the naked. They visit people in jail. They go take care of the sick. And notice, what the judge expects is within the reach of everyone. He's not looking for big miracles. He's looking for small ministries done Faithfully, pray a lot, love on people and forgive a bunch. Serve people where you can and speak the word of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, when the master comes and finds the servant doing his work, the servant will be blessed. And let me remind you, when the master returns, only what brought him glory is going to last When Jesus comes back, this whole earth is going to be purified by fire, and everything that wasn't done for Jesus is going to burn up. The only things that last forever are God's Word and people. That's what we need to be investing in. Stop giving the best of your life to that which matters the least. Don't live a wasted life. Sin less, serve more. And let me remind you, we don't have to live wasted lives. But that doesn't mean we won't live wounded lives. And so Peter has one more thing to say about the coming judgment of God. And it's a hard word, but it's a good word. So read along with me. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of Christ rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs, but it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. There are people right now around the world that take comfort in that. There's no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by His name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who've never obeyed God's good news. And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to the God who created you, for He will Never fail you. And so we're people that take hope in the coming judgment of God. It's why we sin less. It's why we serve more. And it's why we suffer well. Judgment motivates us to suffer well. And Peter is not saying that we should seek suffering. He's just saying if you follow Jesus faithfully, suffering is going to find you. The world doesn't hate religious people. The world hates righteous people because darkness does not like to be exposed by the light. So we should expect hostility. But living hope puts that hostility in perspective. Remember, even if we lose everything, we can't lose the presence of God. I love how Peter put it, the glorious spirit of God rests on you. And the world can't take God's spirit away from you. Never once will you ever walk alone. Never once will he leave you on your own. And I love also how Peter says, nothing we endure now can negate the bliss we will enjoy later. That we are destined for a future that is glorious. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So again, we don't chase suffering, but our view of the future helps us embrace suffering. It helps us take up our cross and pay the price to follow Jesus. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And I might add, sometimes it is a duty. I remember reading a story about a man named Robert Mansfield, a follower of Jesus in South Africa. He was the headmaster of school under apartheid, a horrible forced segregation system enforced by the government at that time. Now, he had scheduled a competition for the young men at his school with young men at another school that was all black, and his board canceled that competition. And Robert did what he felt like his faith compelled him to do, and he resigned his post. And a friend said, are you crazy? Do you know what kind of price you're going to pay? Why would you resign? And Robert pointed to heaven, and he said, when I get up there, the judge will ask if I have any scars. And if I say, no, I do not have any scars, then the judge will ask, why? Was there nothing to fight for? And I could not bear to hear that question. We hope in the return of Jesus. The judge is coming back. We live in light of that day, so we sin less, and we serve more, and we suffer well, because we know the judge is going to make everything right. So, Peter says, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to the God who created you, for He will never fail you. My friend, I'm hoping in the coming judgment of God, And one reason we are hopeful is because we know God is faithful. The verdict of God is going to overturn the judgments of men. He's not going to fail. He's not going to fail in his effort to make everything right. He's not going to fail in his promise to make us righteous. And it's important for all of us who are believers in Jesus to remember this. We yearn for the return of Christ because our sins have already been judged. They were judged at the cross of Jesus. And because of that, yes, we have an expiration date, but we also have a resurrection date. And our future is not judgment. Our future is grace. Do you remember what Peter said back in the first chapter? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, I want to be very, very clear these next couple of minutes. Remember, the Holy Spirit told Paul to tell Timothy, in light of the coming of God who will judge the living and the dead, preach the word. And so I'm going to preach. God is holy, He must judge. Sin, you don't get to choose if he will judge sin. You get to choose where. Where is God going to judge your sin? I have a good friend who told me a story recently of being with a man in another state, a very, very well-known man, a very, very wealthy man. They're in line at a sandwich shop, and the man turns to my friend and says, out of the blue, are you afraid to die? Caught my friend off guard. He said, well... I don't want to die today, but if I did, I would not be afraid because I'm a follower of Jesus. Why do you ask? And that man said, well, a week ago, I got to meet Billy Graham. I was at his place in North Carolina. We're having a meal, and Billy Graham asked me if I was afraid to die. And I said, as a matter of fact, Billy, I am afraid to die. And Billy Graham said, then we need to change that. And I love the fact that this man, in his 90s, was still asking the question that matters most of all. And by the way, that man died recently, a believer in Jesus. The end is near. It is not time for trivial questions. Are you ready for the return Jesus. His resurrection guarantees He is coming back. Some are going to confirm Him as Savior. Some are going to confront Him as Judge. All are going to confess Him as Lord. But the Judge is returning to, to destroy all that is wrong and make everything right. That is my yearning. That is my deepest desire. That is my hope. Dear friend, don't go to bed tonight until you know it is your hope, too. So let me pray for us, and I do pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for what you accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many that listen to me right now are yearning for His return. They're saying, Maranatha! Because their sin has been judged and washed away in His blood. And they are ready for everything to be made right. But I know right now some listening to me are not ready. They've not confessed Christ. Their sin has not yet been judged. And my prayer, God, is that Your Holy Spirit will convict them I know it won't condemn them. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn, but the Holy Spirit does convict. And I'm praying the Holy Spirit will convict everyone listening to me right now that has not put saving faith in Jesus, that they will do that before this day is over, that all of us will be able to say tonight, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we are ready. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.